Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast devoted to research methods in practice. We speak with Jay Borchert, PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology and a Population Studies Center trainee at the University of Michigan. Jay is also a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at UC Berkeley School of Law. Today, we talk about his research conducted for his dissertation titled Mass Incarceration, the Profession of Corrections, and the Way Prison Workers Construct Meanings About Their Participation in Our Punishment State. We talk about Jay's ethnographic observation of prisons and the semi-structured interviews he conducted with correctional officers. And as a side note, we did conduct this interview in person in New York, so please forgive any background noises and sirens. talking with Jay Borchard about his dissertation research in which he conducted semi-structured interviews. So Jay, if you're going to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it, how would you describe it? So I'd say first and foremost that interviews, particularly semi-structured interviews, are a really flexible tool for gathering quality data. Uh, the best interviews seem more like conversations instead of interrogations or just boring quest- question and answer sessions. Um, they often really provide a way for researchers to uncover the ways that people on the ground in their daily life interact with institutions or social problems, economic structures, and even with core concepts in sociology. We can use interviews to test processes that other sociologists have talked about in their work. One example is we might be able to ask subjects why they committed a crime. Some might say, because I didn't have money or education or opportunity, and we can ask them to describe their decision-making processes and their thoughts that may have led them to commit a crime. So the best thing about interviews is that they allow people the opportunity to be more than one-dimensional, right? A one-dimensional variable might have somebody check a box indicating that they're between 18 and 25 or that they have a high school diploma. So interviews allow the subject to reveal in greater detail what type of 18 to 25 year old they might be or what their high school experience was like in greater detail. So we're going to use your recent work doing interviews in prisons as a way to understand how the method works. So what were your central research questions and then what was the basic design for the project? So I really wanted to get into the understanding of prison work on the ground during the era of mass incarceration. Um, Sociology right now basically understands mass incarceration as either simply a rise in the number of prisoners that we have in our prisons to unforeseen levels, and we also sometimes see it as a major building boom across the country. I also think that it's important to add the huge increase in the number of people we have working in our prisons to the equation. So it's not only a rise in prisoners, and an increase in the number of prison facilities, but an increase in the number of people working in prison. So I wanted to understand really basically how these prison workers understand their work worlds. What does prison work mean to them in an era of mass incarceration, particularly when the problems and social damages of mass incarceration are becoming more and more a part of everyday discourse. So that was the motivation driving the work. 
some of the core questions I wanted to ask was how people understand their work world given kind of field level kind of theoretical assumptions. So generally we might assume that people working in one state will reveal similar attitudes about prison work. And I wanted to see if I could uncover variants that was linked to various perhaps cultural um, conditions or conditions of the local political economy, or perhaps understandings that are linked to race or gender or other uh, individual level characteristics. Um, so that was important. I wanted to kind of disaggregate the understanding of prison work from the state level to a more localized context and, and build variance there. I also wanted to look at a state that was um, engaging in some really swift change from a highly punitive state to a state that was focused on rehabilitation and kind of bringing people into society better prepared to regain their lives. Kentucky had gone through some really serious fiscal problems and that drove them to change their focus from punishing people to rehabilitating people. That change from punishment to rehabilitation really is kind of a, an example of changing symbolic boundaries between prisoners and the people who are watching over them. So here we have people who were worthy of punishment and we're changing them to people who are worthy of resources, of rehabilitation, of education, of better treatment. How are these shifting kind of boundaries uh, signaled on the ground by the people in the workforce? Also, I wanted to, a third component uh, and the final component is I wanted to update and expand Everett Hughes' classic concept of dirty work to the contemporary era of, era of mass incarceration. So I wanted to find out how people understand prison work as dirty work, if they do understand it as dirty work, or, you know, how and how they negotiate their work on the ground, how they, they recognize the moral ethical components of prison work or if they don't see their work as moral ethical in any way. Mm -hmm. So you, you go in, you're doing your interviews, and we'll talk through that in detail, but just to foreshadow that, what are some of the, the initial findings that you learned once you actually were in and doing the interviews? Like I said, I set out to really reinvigorate Everett Hughes' original concept of dirty work, and, and a lot of us remember that occupations that are conceptually linked to dirty work are those jobs that are absolutely necessary for society, but which few people select as a career choice. Things like trash collector or grave digger, embalmer, cop, or certainly correctional officer, aka prison guard. So some of these are just jobs, for lack of a better word, and others have a moral ethical component. So even collecting trash in many ways, if we extend it, can have a moral ethical component if we look at public health concerns, right? I wanted to interrogate this in, in, in the present case of mass incarceration. So I asked through various prompts how, why, and when do prison workers identify a moral ethical component of the work? And if they, if they do identify this component, why do they do it? Do they do it to elevate it to a clean, normal, noble form of community service, or they do, it, do they do it just so they can live with it? What I found is that the cleansing of dirty work is actually a process. It's not just a one-time deal. So choosing prison work entails an ongoing, intensive process of cleansing that begins prior to even applying for the job as a prison guard through training, 
while on the job and during retirement. And one of the things is we don't, many of us don't grow up thinking, well, I want a job at the prison. So when we're confronted with an opportunity or a reality that that's the only job that's available in our environment locally, we have to do a little bit of a negotiation with ourselves in order to apply for that job. And so that's kind of the start or beginning of the cleansing process while all of them engage in cleansing at least in the beginning for some prison work becomes too much too intense and they stop discussing um their work with anyone they just they just leave it alone it becomes mm -hmm. the the cleansing stops after training they don't talk about it with their family with their friends with church members anyone it's too much for them to bear and of course there is some selection bias because the people who i did talk to are the ones who are able to manage it and of course there is some attrition for some people that they just leave prison work. Interestingly, wardens, people with higher rank in prison, seem to engage in a lot more cleaning or a different type of cleaning of their work because they kind of interact with a different social circle that might be kind of a more professional, more educated social circle. They want to seem that they're doing very clean, productive work. So they diminish the dirty parts of the job and they really elevate the, the cleaner, more noble, form, noble forms of service. Their peers are more aware of the problems of our criminal justice system, so they want to seem like they're, you know, all the time doing something that's, that's right on point. And finally, in contrast, Frontline workers who actually do the dirty work, and I really mean the truly dirty portion of the work, everything from breaking up fights to sorting through feces for drugs to cutting down people from suicide attempts, um, these frontline workers elevate their work to um, oftentimes a form of spiritual community service. Um, while there are some components of the job that are really unseemly, the job in its entirety for these workers is about service, patriotism in some case, and selflessness. And so in this way, the job remains clean, doable, and emotionally manageable as a long-term Just to tie this all together with the way you set up the theory, which was, which was really clear, um, how, in what ways do you think doing the interviews really sort of fit with the theoretical framing? Is there any sort of benefit to this method in the context of the framing that you chose? Yeah, I think there's a major benefit. It fit really well because my prompt simply didn't generate um, a dichotomous or categorical response, except for some of the demographic questions, right? Each theoretically driven uh, prompt required subjects to negotiate um, and present their understanding of what was going on in prisons. Uh, in the prisons they work in, who the prisoners were, who their co-workers were, what the purpose of prison is. Um, so survey methods which look at, um, which characterize a lot of the previous work on correctional officer beliefs and attitudes, made comparison between states, but they're less able to provide thick descriptions during moments of change within states that I saw in, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And it's really important, um, like I said, because uh, Kentucky is undergoing a lot of very, some very swift changes that are renegotiating the roles of the role of prisons in society. These shifting social tides are reshaping the ways that we understand prisons and prisoners, punishment, rehabilitation, drugs, addiction, race, whether the factors pushing for change are social or economic, there are identifiable kind of endogenous within the K Kentucky Department of Corrections indicators that correspond with these social forces that are happening, like Black Lives Matter, for example. Mm -hmm. These changes can be signaled through interviews and observations with correctional workers. So there's a real benefit in engaging qualitative methods 
to build thick descriptions of moments or sets of moments in time that signal the way change is being negotiated on the ground by individuals, groups, even at the facility level, and um, the cultural geographies that that we're working in. Um, Who, why, and where are the early adopters, the early deniers of these changes, and the early apathetics and agnostics, right, Mm -hmm. within within this prison system that's hurtling toward change. So the analytic really set out to elaborate on this critical moment and maybe understood, I think, as an entree into the formation of new organizational forms, um, identities, boundaries, attitudes, and beliefs that are you know, part of the theoretical perspectives on correctional change. And- I mean, it's not easy to get into a prison. So how did you <laughs> access your data and your interview subjects, um, and how did you decide to sample? Wow. So... Um, you know, I, I really, really had um, some great opportunities here, and I, I, I just jumped in feet first. I had met the commissioner of the Kentucky Department at a meeting of the Association of State Correctional Administrators where I was speaking on a project about the Prison Rape and Elimination Act. Um, she and I worked together on that project, and she was amazingly forthcoming and welcoming of prisons research generally. Um, and this is really a rare, rare characteristic of, of correctional leadership um, today. I asked her uh, if she might be willing to hear a pitch for a project. Uh, she said, sure. And I put together a proposal, sent it to her office. She liked it a lot. Then I sent it to the IRB and their research branch. All was a go. And the project was born. As part of that kind of early process, I visited their headquarters in Frankfurt, met everyone, and got a bit of the lay of the land. And so um, that was kind of the early. So, so that seems like it's it's probably um, there's some fortuitous things that happened there, which which is clearly helpful. Um, any barriers that you faced when you were when you were trying to get access, or or even we can talk about sort of. Um, any of the unexpected challenges you had once you got to the site? Like, how did you recruit your interviewees or, or how did you engage with them? Sure. It's really important just to say yes to everything, like mm-hmm. just to jump in there. So I just made sure I said yes to every single opportunity presented. And I figured out how to do it later, whether it was method or IRB or whatever. I said yes, and then I got to work figuring out how I was going to do it. And I think this is true in a lot of social science research. And unless you know that you can't do it in any way, it's important to say yes. For example, um, I'm not about to develop something for mathematical sociology on my prisons research. If the department wanted me to develop a complex computational model in relation to my questions, I would have had to say no. Um, or call up a math genius to be a co-author and help me figure it out, right? But otherwise, say yes to everything. As far as random sampling in an institutional setting, this is really tough, particularly in the context of a prison or even a hospital. I mean, I can see it being equally as tough in a hospital. There are necessary staff and and figuring out a way to pull them away from their work is never an easy thing to do. So interacting with the daily institutional demands is really a tough road to hoe. There are staffing issues, unforeseen events that can interrupt even the best laid plans for random sampling. This is just a reality of doing work in this setting. There were days when fights broke out in the prison where medical emergencies happened. Uh, In fact, uh, one day at the Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women, 
Interviews were interrupted when a prisoner went into labor and eventually gave birth on the prison's yard. That superseded that day's interviews with the wardens uh, there, of course. Uh, so those interviews had to be conducted later over the phone, which wasn't ideal, but it was a, a backup plan, right? So let me talk a little bit about my goals for a minute in constructing mm -hmm. somewhat of a random sample. Yeah. So Kentucky, as I said earlier, was really one of the most punitive criminal justice systems in prisons in the country for, for decades. And in fact, they were so punitive that their prison system and its expansion nearly made the state go broke. So in 2009-2010, some bills were passed by the legislature and they redirected Kentucky's system into a more rehabilitative model. So for sampling, I wanted primarily subjects who were part of the prior punitive system and I wanted subjects who came on board after the rehabilitative term. I also wanted to interview employees across the various types of prisons in Kentucky. And by that, I mean across security levels um, from minimum to medium to maximum security and also employees who worked in men's and women's prisons alike. The goal in the beginning would be to do my best to ensure that I had men and women in my sample as well as people of different races um, to the best of my ability. But this particular component um, was not always easy in Kentucky because it has a very particular history. It's, it has a very particular geography of race and poverty um, that contours um, employees in the department. So some of the sampling issues were avoided when I was granted permission um, as well as funding to visit every, every facility in the Commonwealth. So I was able to engage the population of prisons um, across all prison types in Kentucky that were run by the DOC and that that was a lucky break in that area. During the process, I couldn't be sure that I was getting a random sample. I really had no idea beyond trust who my subjects were. The proof had to be in the pudding and, and what I mean by that is that my findings revealed rich identifiable variants in the ways these workers understand their work worlds, the ways they understand prison life, and their personal interaction with our criminal justice system. So the findings showed, thankfully, that I hadn't been part of a plot by the Kentucky Department of Corrections to skew data in any direction. Uh, I always believed that the department was acting in good faith, that I hadn't been sold a bill of goods in order to produce, to produce biased findings. Sometimes as a researcher doing research in an area with um, such a long history of problematic issues, such as our prisons, you just have to go for it and believe in your own capacity to do good work and to establish good faith relationships with your research subjects. In this case, it was an ongoing process of communication between myself, the department, my mentors, and my subjects, and it happened to work out. And uh, so did anything go wrong in the field or what kind of unexpected challenges did you face or maybe expect to face or other people um, in a similar project might face? Some of the, the issues that I ran into are, are issues that everybody doing qualitative work that's based in the field will run into. And so I can't underestimate how important it is to both to know both local jargon, but attitudes, norms, manners, and be able to marshal those characteristics, not through kind of trickery, but in a genuine effort to get to know field level characteristics or the lay of the land before you jump into the research site. Just like a kayaker knows a river or a farmer knows a particular piece of land, we as researchers have to be able to read and understand social signals and cues, particularly when investigating institutions like prisons that already suffer from so many problematic histories and conditions. One thing that was key was 
dramatic things happened all the time in the course of my work. So I had to watch my face and I had to watch my reactions. I didn't, I don't mean that I had to be stoic or, you know, completely deadpan all the time. I just had to act like I wasn't in a sideshow. I wasn't. And the reality is, is I wasn't. I was in a real life situation and the people there deserved my respect. Um, so it's important to be able to manage your reactions and emotions in those situations. Another thing I think it's important to note, especially in, in the case of, of prisons, many prisons have been built in areas of extreme poverty and isolation, particularly in the case of Kentucky. So the characteristics of local political kind of economies make going to work in a prison, which is a stable job with benefits, a logical, if not pleasant choice uh, for a lot of people. Their choices are understandable in our economy and in our politics. So going in with a judgmental kind of holier than thou attitude just makes no sense at all. If we claim to know anything about our history and our politics, particularly our racial politics. And it makes not, it makes no sense um, to do that if we really want to work towards solving social problems. So you have to be aware of the historical political context of, of the sites that you're visiting. You have to expect the unexpected, go with the flow and take advantage of opportunities. Know when you're done. Mm-hmm. It's really, really important to know when you're done, done with the project mm-hmm. and done with the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just takes so much out of you. Know when they want you to be done for the day. Respect others uh, and respect your own limits as a human being in the process. Doing this type of work is really emotional labor, as Alison Liebling so uh, eloquently tells us on the topic. In prison work, we encounter tough, emotional, brutal shit, and it takes a toll. It's important to have a support system in order to help get us through these rough patches. Persistence and smiles really go a long way. Um, just like they do in life. And let me talk about, so that's more about the practice, but, mm-hmm. and let me talk a little bit about an incident that happened that, that mm-hmm. I think some of us as sociologists confront. Surely we have our professional identities as sociologists, two other sociologists, two people in the field. Some of us might have websites, some of us might have other things going on, published work. So, um, those, kind of identities and previous works have the potential to contaminate the field. It's important to understand our web presence before we go in to do that work and to kind of prefigure the ways that that might interfere with our work. And um, we can't always do that. Some surprising things may happen. So I'll talk about one of the things that, that did happen. So some of, my, some of you might know that my previous work has focused on kind of the disjoint landscape of rights for LGBT people between society and prison. So today, um, a same-sex couple can kiss in society and it might be celebrated, but in prison, if these same two people kiss, they can be sent to solitary confinement. So while it's, while the top, while the research is exploring kind of rules frameworks and disjoint landscapes of rights, some might view that as standpoint research, as gay research, as radical research, right? One of the first prisons that I went to, the people there had found some of my work on the web. And they thought 
the gay guy who does gay work, who does gay-to-gay stuff, is coming to contaminate our prison with his gay ideas and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I had no idea what to do when this was revealed to me. That was an instance where I had to watch my face and try to maintain these contacts. I won't get into the way I found out about it. I was able to salvage that project and I was that day's work. But at the end of the day, I called the research coordinator and we worked together to ensure that my future site visits were not kind of contaminated with subjects who had kind of made assumptions about me and my work um, through web searches and reading my website and stuff like that. So our own our own previous work, no matter how well received, can be kind of misconstrued. And I think this is something that we encounter just as sociologists. We have a sociolo sociological language and jargon that's not always easily translatable on the ground to, you know, people in our research site. And I found that out early, mm -hmm. thankfully. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting and something I think people in different sites could probably relate to. We don't talk about it that much. So that's, that's really, that's interesting. We don't, we, we don't think about taking down our website. Mm-mm. Especially, you know, I, w I was on the market, mm -hmm. so I'm not going to take down my website. I, I need to maintain it. Like, it, it just seemed, I just had no idea that yeah. I would be, uh, you know, presented that way. But you, you it, it, what what can work is you, you work to then, in, you know, confront that by ensuring that you're acting in good faith, yeah. that you have, that you're an ethical researcher, that you're not setting out to, mm -hmm. you know, demonize or paint with broad brush generalizations and strokes. And, you know, that's what I did to kind of fix that and we went on and, and the day was salvaged but it was it was something that was shocking to me and, and um, a lesson that I learned early thankfully mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean when you're doing these interviews let's talk a little bit about some of the techniques did you record the interviews did you take notes and then so how did you constitute sort of your data set and that, that you could go and analyze basically I, I just kind of went on standard operating procedure. One of the things I said earlier that it's is that it's really, really just vital to know your locale. I spent a good deal of time traveling across Kentucky and getting to know Kentucky. And I also did kind of, I did site visits and ethnographic observations of each uh, field site that I went to. And um, I had incredible access to go absolutely anywhere I wanted in that in each prison I went to. One of the things I did was when I would go, um, you know, when I would walk around these sites and, and in these prisons, I would ask the people who were taking me uh, through the facility to take me uh, what is different about their facility as compared to other facilities in Kentucky? T show me something that you're proud of. Show me something that you want to change. This would get them talking, and I would get to know a little bit of the, the local lay of the land, and I would be exposed to surprises that would help me kind of understand what people were talking about when I went to do the interview. So that was one of the keys, is, is methodologically I needed to get to know my research site, and, and each prison has a different kind of 
modus operandi. And it was important to get to know that as best as I could. And then um, I was able to pretty much select who I wanted to interview. I had kind of printouts of people and their tenure and number of years on the job. I was able to pick out who was came on after the kind of rehabilitative turn and who had been working during the punitive era. And I was able to select from them. And most of the time that, that times that worked out, I um, tried to interview the same number of correctional officers and wardens at each facility. Uh, I ended up doing over a hundred interviews. They were all recorded. They were of course all consented. Uh, they were recorded, transcribed, analyzed both by hand and with Atlas TI. And I used a number of kind of analytic tools. Um, I really like Stefan Timmermans and Ido Tavori's work on abduction theory abduction. Um, it sounds like you're taking theory, you're abducting it. So you, you it, it's different from grounded theory, um, which kind of asks you to clear your mind of any possible preconceptions. I don't think that's possible. So we all went to our undergraduate institutions and to graduate school to learn about these perspectives and previous empirical work that 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 uh, in our area in our field of expertise and so in theory abduction we take findings and theoretical positions from pre-existing work and we're able to kind of construct truth tables and kind of kind of do some deductive and, and, and uh, analysis and find anomalies or similarities between existing theory and that helps us to build new theory. Um, in addition, um, Diane Vaughn and her heuristics of case analysis really also helped me similarly. It's I think I find it um, to be a similar yet complementary method to analyzing qualitative data. And so that's more kind of, I think in, in Diane's case, that's more of a kind of a truth table type of format that we can I'll take all the way back to Theta Scotch Bowl if we want. I just want to reiterate, for me, other people might be able to clear their mind in that way. I, I just don't think that it's possible, and I think we should use those pre, the previous knowledge that, that's been built by, um, you know, in, in our field to help us adjudicate what we're seeing now today. Um, and, it, and it helps us kind of, to kind of create a, um, a complete story. So let's move into, um, I, think, and I think that's really helpful for people who are, are confronted with the mass of qualitative data they've collected and maybe don't mm -hmm. know how to, to begin. So I think that that's helpful. Um, but let's, let's move into some big picture kind of questions. Sure. And, um, and one of the things we ask our interviewees to, to kind of puzzle through with us is how you think about concepts like generalizability mm. and validity. Yeah. Um, mostly because we know this is such a cornerstone of our methods courses that we teach or that we take, but sometimes it's hard sure. to kind of think about how that works in your own project. So sure. how did you think about that? There's ways that I think about it more broadly, and there's a way I think about it in this context. We can talk about both of those maybe a little bit. So... I just want to say it's training, 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 and even more observation before going to the field. Um, I've learned from a lot, uh, from a group of amazing qualitative scholars at Michigan, from Fred Weary to Karen Lacey, Al Young, and Renee Ansbach. And I think one of the most important lessons I learned is that long-term observation and learning are required before data collection begins in earnest um, so that we can produce valid qualitative findings, particularly when doing ethnographic or face-to-face -face interview work in the field. Um, as a researcher, as a researcher witness, um, we have to know the lay of the land. And I know I've said that a bunch of times, but we just, we just have to. And so the built environment, um, we have to know the built environments, um, the built environment, its signals, the local jargon and syntax and the dynamics of gender and race and sexuality on the ground. We have to know 
the localized hierarchies that we'll confront in our observations and hear about in our interviews, right? Um, Josh Page writes really eloquently about the importance of identifying field-level characteristics um, such as these, and Fred, uh, weary a good friend and colleague from my earliest days of grad school, spends considerable time in the field learning local structure, culture, norms, and language, even learning Thai for his work on the cultural markets that he conducted in Thailand. So there's a lot of early work going on, and for me, we haven't talked about that a lot, but some of that came through my own experience with the criminal justice system um, in various states uh, before I went to grad school. So that prepared me well to jump in and to kind of have a feeling for it, but it's a tough, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult task. So considering the social problems we encounter on the ground, it's really imperative that we can understand what's going on. And that if we can't, that we have local jargon at hand that we can use as a tool to uncover the meanings of things in our research sites. So we might not know something and we might not even know how to ask about it. So we have to learn how to ask about it, right? Without this, I don't think any qualitative researcher can even begin to make claims about validity, even with the best sampling techniques, um, nor can they talk about generalizability, something that's already a hot button topic in the ongoing methodological battlefront, right? Excellent. And and leads kind of well into my next question, which is uh, positionality. So mm. this is really key, I think, for your project. So how did you think about your relative position uh, to, the, to the field, to the site, to the people you interviewed, and, and how did you negotiate that? One of the, the, the clearer ways that I had to um, negotiate and kind of present my positionality, it's kind of a, you know, a Goffman-esque presentation of self in daily life as a researcher, right? So it was a big part of the construction of the project, um, its design. Uh, it, was a, it was part and parcel of expressing my goals, my own identity as a researcher, and um, kind of revealing my insider status as well. So to start, I had to ensure prison officials that I had insider knowledge through my own personal experience um, and that this experience revealed to me that everyone who works in a prison or for a prison is not the devil. Prison officials, people who work in a prison are shell-shocked with that impression of them. They get it at the grocery store. They get it at church. They get it in the newspaper. They get it by researchers who have done biased research. And so... I needed to reveal to them that I, I know that there's variance in the field, just like there is at any job. Then I had to communicate my goal of doing unbiased, high-quality research that will allow us really as a society to move forward towards solving some of the social problems that have been linked to mass incarceration. So there's really no benefit in making the system any worse than it already is for political reasons, for my own political reasons. So this was important because at the end of the day, the work I do is about people. And I'm not uh, interested in hurting anyone in any way, particularly through bias findings. And so, like I said, prison or mass incarceration is bad enough. And that's already been proved, right? So there's finally, there's my reputation as a researcher on the line. I need to maintain that, not just for my own self and grad, you know, like my own ego. It's so that I can keep doing the work on social problems as research. It's not something I'm willing to give up in any case. And so my own ethics drive me to do rigorous work in order to keep working on critical social problems. I'd be abdicating like a huge level of trust and responsibility if I cut corners and I'm not willing to do that. So I think at the end that that was kind of the 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 kind of 
major piece that I, that I have my own set that, set of ethics, and they're based in not my own ego, but in actually doing good work on the ground. So I think that's where positionality was most important for the project. When you were thinking about, um, as you're writing up this research, you know, and it's, it's your dissertation research, so you can think more kind of big picture, sure. your research agenda in general, but um, who was your intended audience and how might that shape some of the choices that you make? Well, I've got a broad audience, I think. I mean, I really want my work to reach deep into sociological practice and theory. Um, I want to do work that advances the discipline. Um, sure, I mean, mainly because that in that way my work can help uh, to pave the way for future research. I also want my work to be easily translatable to anybody who wants to learn more about mass incarceration, prisons, punishment, and the law. And this means policymakers, politicians, clergy, anybody. And I certainly want the public to be in the audience too. One of the main motivations for doing prisons research is my belief that prisons are collective projects, just like roads, parks, schools, and sports stadiums. Since prisons are collective products, projects, they should be knowable. Quality data should be available to support informed public discourse, build an informed electorate, and the democratic process, right? Support the and to support the democratic process, prisons in this sense have to be transparent and knowable. You know, what worked for you? What are some of the main advantages um, of this approach as, as people are thinking about designing their own projects? If you're setting out to do the type of work that brings you into contact with a lot of people, with a lot of personalities from various kind of economic and social classes and educational backgrounds, you really have to like people and be, be willing to meet people where they are. And I, it, this is so important. Um, I'll tell you one story about this. And, and I was in eastern, rural eastern Kentucky. And eastern Kentucky, if you've never been there, I, I'm not suggesting poverty tourism but in any sense of the word. But it is an unbelievably beautiful geography that is characterized by just unremittent poverty. I, I have never, I'm familiar with Kentucky and it's always um, a shock to see every time I go, but you can make relationships and you can, and, and, and so one day I was at a prison in rural Eastern Kentucky and I had finished with my interviews and it was a good day and, and I was driving through the mountains to my next site to get to the hotel to go to my next site. And I noticed my gas gauge was not working properly. And I thought to myself, Jay, you better pull over at the next gas station you see because you're, you're going to run out of gas. And right when I ended that thought, my car just said, oh, I'm done. And it floated over to the side of the road. And, and I was below a cliff and there was a, I was on the curve in the road and there was a really rushing stream on the other side. We had had, they had had flooding into Kentucky during that time. And so it was, the stream was really just full of water. So it was a really bad place to be stuck in. I waited. I had no cell service, of course, because I was in the mountains. And this truck pulled up behind me. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, I'm clearly not from Eastern Kentucky. And this might not go well. But the gentleman and his son got out and said, you know, hey, you're, you're in a bad spot. And I said, yeah, I kind of mean, what happened? Well, I ran out of gas. Well, I can see that. Well, let, you know, let's get you off the road. I said, okay, let's get us off the road. So we moved my car to the side and in conversation, it turned out that the guy worked at the prison 
that I had just left. Oh, wow. I was over an hour from the prison and he worked there and he wanted to know what I thought and I told him that I had met some great people and had some good conversations and, and that the day went really well and he said, well, I'm really glad and it just turns out I have a gallon of ga gas in the back of my pickup and he went and grabbed the gallon of gas out of the bed of his pickup and filled up my car with <laughs> enough gas so I could get to the gas station and I was able to go on my way and, and complete the project. But it's really important to, to build these relationships and to, to respect research subjects. Subjects, I know a lot, you know, all of us go into the field doing that. But I think it's not always easy to kind of make that work on the ground. And so it's an, it's an effort to constantly meet people where, they at, where they're at, um, understand their lives, and um, move forward through research like we all wanted to do as sociologists when we started doing this work, right? <laughs> right. So I, I think there, there are so many amazing human moments that, that we can experience as sociologists. So um, take advantage of those is my, would be my advice. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Jay. This is fascinating and um, actually makes me think of like a million more questions I'd like to ask. <laughs> so, so we'll put your contact info up so people can get in touch with you um, if they want to follow. So thank you so much. Great. It's been fun. On behalf of me, Kyle Green, and my co-producer, Sarah Logason, thank you for listening. And remember, please, give Methods a chance. <laughs>